Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. Today, we are going to be talking about In Watermelon Sugar by Richard Brodigan. This is from 1968. Uh, something we should say at the top of the show is that uh, months ago, we told you that right around now is when we would be getting back to Gene Wolfe, but we have decided to... Uh, well, make liars of ourselves, I guess, is what we have decided to do. Uh, look, rather than interrupt a, a six-episode series with our holiday break, uh, we're going to air this episode now and then just start the iFlash Miracles in, in January. It's a solid plan, Glenn. Uh, I hope everyone is as okay with it as you and I are. <laughs> but yeah, this this novel is a real treat. And if you haven't read it, Go get it and read it. Maybe it won't be your cup of tea. Maybe listen to the episode first. I don't know how you do things out there. I love this novel. It's a, a novel that was commissioned to us by a Patreon supporter. And once again, this would never have been on my radar. So thank you so much. I hope we can communicate our interest and love of this work through, throughout this episode. Yeah, I'm really, really jazzed to have this conversation. And of course, getting this commission, I mean, I should say thank you for that. But getting this commission, of course, is, is sort of how we got to let's push back starting the iFlash Miracles a little bit. Let's air this now because this seemed like a really, well, it's a super interesting book. Seems important to get out here on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. We just wanted to share it with people right away. Um, we've called this a novel already. It certainly is a long work. I think Technically, by word count, it is a novella, but uh, by page count, it's definitely a novel. Uh, none of that really matters, except to say that we are not going to do a recap and commentary style episode. What we're going to do really is just work through a series of discussions so that we can handle this in all just one episode. Though we will have a plot synopsis for people who have not read this book before or haven't read it in a long time. Before we get into it, though, we do need to issue a content advisory the plot of this story involves suicide. Uh, in fact, there's a pretty grisly narrative of self-harm, just more generally, in the middle of this story, and we think you ought to know that going in. We do also want to take the chance here just to remind you about the Veterans Crisis Line. This is a phone line where U.S. military veterans or their family members can talk or, or text or internet chat with someone to get help or get support. And if that's you, if that description fits you. We do hope that you'll take advantage of it. The phone number is 988. The text number is 838-255. And of course, you can find all of that by Googling as well. And that's also what will take you to the, the internet chat function as well. Okay, let's get into this story. We're actually going to not start with the plot synopsis. We're going to start really by talking about well, just kind of the basics here, the premise, the structure, the voice of the story. Because in Watermelon Sugar is something of a strange book. Uh, for starters, as we said, it's novella by word count, but it is packaged as a novel. Uh, what I mean by that is that you can get it all on its own between two covers. It comes out to 140 pages or so, but that's because the chapters are very short, sometimes only a single paragraph. And so, you know, they take up a single page or, well, I guess they don't really take up even a full page, but they, you know, get a whole page, even though they don't need that much space. Um, I kind of think this is how my students would like to write their papers sometimes. At any rate, uh, <laughs> the <laughs> book is short in terms of content, but long on the number of chapters, though they themselves are short. The chapters have titles as well, rather than numbers. These are titles such as The Tomb Crew, which that sounds exciting, but then there's also a chapter called 
a nap, which also actually that sounds exciting to me today as well, I will say. <laughs> but all right, we should also talk about the voice of this novella before we get into it. It is written in the first person. Our narrator, though, never reveals his name to us. In fact, there's something, you know, bizarre going on uh, with his name in this book. But at any rate, everyone in the book knows that the narrator is writing the book. It's a kind of service that he provides to the community. But the narrative voice here is, I guess, simple, maybe is the way that I would describe it. He narrates all sorts of seemingly insignificant things. It's a move that would drive Hemingway crazy, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But he also doesn't seem to really understand his own social setting, maybe not his natural setting either. Um that's probably a good segue into our next topic, which is the setting. But let's pause there just to see if there's anything you want to add to the the premises here, Brandon. Well, I, I think he's someone who, even within the text itself, doesn't understand the function of narrative, right? It's not really a narrative novel, though there are narratives wo- woven in. There's all the beats you'd get in a narrative. But this writer, this person who's writing this novel, is doing so... Um, Maybe to f- to fill a function in his in his immediate culture, rather than out of some sort of drive to tell a story that is going to be meaningful to himself, to his community, to history, something like that. What thinking about what the narrative goals of this writer are is kind of maybe a part of the fun of the novel itself, uh, though that might drive a lot of you know, people who really reject postmodernism crazy. I promise you this is handled beautifully. It's handled well. Every sentence is punchy and engaging. Um, and yeah, I think that also leads to the to the voice. Um, books aren't a thing in this community. And so he doesn't really know what a book is or why it should be written. And that's also kind of all caught up in the type of place that that this narrator is in. I would describe his style as, as more, you know, Vonnegut-esque than Hemingwayan. And um, I'm sure that, I don't know, Vonnegut is somebody that might have driven Hemingway crazy as well. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of playfulness here in the text and it's not done from a perspective to impress some kind of critic. There's a lot of love of language and writing and playing with convention that goes into it. Um, the kinds of things we might love in a Gene Wolfe novel, this is just more on the Vonnegut side than on the Wolf side, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a reason we decided that this story needed to be covered on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast because, yeah, this feels very wolfish to me in the sense that you're absolutely right that Brodigan is playful here in what he's doing, but the narrator is not, right? The narrator is a real character in this world who is incredibly earnest, not not playful at all, right? The things that strike us as playful can only strike us that way because we understand that the character who is narrating this to us doesn't fully understand his own setting. I mean, we don't either, but we're kind of in on the joke in ways that the narrator simply can't be. And yeah, it just felt like, you know, Gene Wolfe winking at us, right? So it's a very familiar territory for uh, listeners to this show. And maybe let's, uh, let's get into actually, well, some descriptions here of the setting. Because this setting is not our world. It's it's not the world of now, and it's not the world of the book's composition in the 1960s either. What exactly 
it is. This, you know, is, is up for debate here, right? It's a question that we will have to tackle in a little bit. But let me start really just by describing some aspects of the setting to you. Let's start with the physical world, and let's start with sunlight because the sunlight is strange in this world. The sunlight is a different color every day, or at least you know every day of the week, right? There's a, a pattern here. Mondays the light is red. Tuesdays it's golden. Friday, it's, it's black. Sunday, it's brown, right? So every day has a, has a different color, uh, which also then really means that the whole world has a different hue to it depending on the day of the week. Uh, there's also something happening here with sound on one of these days. And uh, also, I should say that the stars are all red. That never changes, but the stars in the sky are all red. We also need to talk about tigers uh, because there are tigers that can talk, or at least there have been until recently. These tigers eat people, and the people of the narrator's community seem to have killed them all in the recent past, or at least killed enough of them to drive the others away. It's not entirely clear what's happened there, but they talk, they sing, they play musical instruments. The narrator's own parents were eaten by talking tigers. In fact, the tigers talked to the narrator while they ate his parents, and the narrator was a child at the time. This seems to have been a fairly traumatic experience for him, even though he describes it in ways that don't really uh, make that trauma front and center. That might be something we need to meditate on a little bit, but I'll uh, continue the survey here of the physical world because we also need to talk about watermelons and trout, which is to say that the material existence of the community has a lot to do with these two items, watermelons and trout. These people use every part of the trout and every part of the watermelon in order to make things. Uh, trout oil, just as an example, is their fuel. They also extract sugar from watermelons and then use that sugar to make all sorts of things that we do not make with sugar in our world. Um, I should also add that the colors of the watermelons change with the sunlight and the properties then of the sugar also change with the, the color of it. Uh, yeah, it's all... Real strange, really postmodern, almost maybe bordering on some kind of magical realism, though I don't think that's technically right. Uh, I guess really, Brandon, that's just kind of an invitation for you to jump in here and add anything you think we should add, <laughs> nuance, anything that needs nuance before we start talking about the human society. No, I think you've got it right. I mean, there is this this real sense of instability of meaning. I am going to dive deep into that when we talk about craft. What kind of games is Brodigan playing? Where are they rooted in? Where are they coming from? How to make sense of them? But I think we're left with the questions. The trout do seem like trout, uh, but the watermelons don't seem like watermelons. And there's also a whole bunch of other things that keep us on our back foot, like the description of a living room being outside, right? What does that mean? How how is that function? How does this phrase living room um, come to mean something like a couch in a veranda, <laughs> Or, you know, or something along those lines. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of big questions that we as readers are kind of asked to ask of the novel that the narrator is just not interested in because they are just they're that this is their life. No one would ever in a story we write today, even if you go back a hundred years, you see living room, you know what it means. You don't need to ask questions about it, but in this novel you do. And there's, there's um, kind of reasons why I think, but I think you nailed the physical world here. The tigers are, are great 
and there's this great question that comes up with tigers that, yeah, I don't know. I don't, there's probably not another place that will talk about this, which is, you know, these tigers really put this community in to high alert under a state of, of, of duress and, and maybe even torment and terror. And when this crew in Boyle's crew comes back to the trout hatchery or the trout factory or whatever, and they do this act of self-harm as a kind of maybe an act of madness for some reason, act of protest against community. Uh, the narrator is baffled. He says, we just were under, we just experienced this terrible thing as a community with the tigers. Why would somebody want to do something terrible again? It's a great question, right? That we ask maybe ourselves about our communities, about you know, now with the 24-hour news cycle, why are we constantly seeking out the next bad thing that's happening? Why aren't we focused on building something beautiful for our communities? And so there's a lot of kind of central questions to this novel um, that are concerns of Brodigan's own culture, but he presents them in these ways that are uh, strange. I mean, it is making strange, but also really fun and compelling. And um, I guess that's all I really wanted to add here is that postmodernism is not some kind of anybody can do anything. It's the lawless West. There's real concerns that are involved in in postmodern fiction, and I think this is a great novel as, that the acts can act as an introduction to people who say there's nothing to postmodernism. Um, this this novel's a, a great counter example to that sort of claim. I agree. And there is a lot going on with the the tigers here and the evaporation, I guess maybe we can say, of this external threat. Uh, yeah, let's talk about about, you know, who who are threatened actually by the by the tigers here, this <laughs> human society that we encounter in this world, which is quite small and quite isolated. There's a, a, a town, though we don't actually see very much of the town in this book. Uh, there are also then a number of people who live outside of the town in shacks. This includes our narrator. It also includes his uh, special lady friend. She has a shack of her own. Uh, but there is also some kind of compound called Death, and uh, it is spelled the way it would be if it were an Apple product. And uh, I don't know, this is an Apple product. Yeah, big time. Big <laughs> yes, time. this threw me off so badly in the novel. It feels way too contemporary, uh, you know, especially with its association with industrialization to be. I don't know. It's it's just it's eerily prophetic and and prescient, even though it's just like a kind of funny naming convention that Brodigan came up with that we don't have any access to understanding its meaning. Yeah, we don't know why there's this lowercase i and then, you know, capital D for for death there. We don't know why this place is called this. But at any rate, it is a place where some people have bunks. There might, I guess, actually even really be dorm rooms there. There's a big kitchen. There's communal meals. Uh, it seems that the the people who live in the shacks come to death for their meals. Actually, I guess really, you know, the narrator tells us that people who live in death or, or maybe kind of are assigned to death also then get these shacks. And some people like to stay at this community center and some people like to stay at their shack. He tells us that he prefers to stay in his shack. He spends maybe one night a week in you know the, the community center here, death. Uh, they also rotate who is the cook for meals and they rotate who has cleanup jobs and, and that sort of thing. There's actually quite a bit of attention spent on who's doing the cooking this week and what that means for... Uh, 
the kind of food and quality of food one is likely to get. Um, and yeah, that felt like this is what happens when you live in a close-knit community. It was a very nice touch. But there are other jobs as well. There's an old man who lights the lanterns every evening, the uh, trout oil lanterns, I should say. There are carpenters, there's roofers, there's at least one medical doctor in the town. And our narrator has a job as well, at least he has a job right now, which is to write the book that we are reading. The community also has some strange funerary practices where they bury everyone in glass coffins at the bottom of the river, and everyone's tomb is made ahead of time. And so the tomb crew is also an important job, being a part of the tomb crew. But ultimately, this really, to me, feels like it's well, a small community and a small agricultural community at that, and one where you know meals are important. Everyone has a job that is valued, a job that gives them some kind of role in the community. And it sounds ideal, right? It sounds ideal if you're Gene Wolfe. It sounds ideal if you're G.K. Chesterton or if you're Tolkien. But there is a dark side to this. And you've brought these people up already, Brandon, which is that there have been some outcasts from this community. They went and set up a community of their own somewhere else. We will talk more about them when we get to the well, the plot part of the episode. But for now, we should really talk about where these outcasts set up their community. And that is a place called the Forgotten Works. Or maybe it's better to say they have set up their community really like just outside of the Forgotten Works. Forgotten Works sounds like it's a factory of some sort, but it's in a world that does not have factories anymore. It's a massive place. To me, it felt like it wasn't a massive building, but more like you know something like the size of a mountain range or a really large forest or something like that. But in either case, they find strange things in the Forgotten Works, things that you know we the readers recognize as artifacts from a world very similar to our own, but which are often befuddling to these people, not always, but often befuddling to the people of the story. Right. There's this this moment where you're reading, you know, the text about In Boyle and his crew. They're the they're the outcasts, um, and the things they get from the forgotten works and how that has affected the narrator's relationship with with a woman. Um, and they drink whiskey made from the forgotten things from the forgotten works. And you just wonder how you could even arrive at this word whiskey, right? Or how they are drinking anything or what they're drinking. And it's, it's the forgotten works are here as this, this kind of expanse of the unknown that's really present, constantly present as a mountain range is present in our vision. The, the forgotten works are kind of present in the representation of what's been on what is unknown to this community. And it's kind of this brilliant mode of representation for this vast unknowability about the world. And I really, really love that in, in the, in the novel. I love Brod the way Brodigan is approaching this concept and saying, yeah, we bring all these things back, but that makes you a little weird. It makes you weird to be invested in what's forgotten and the forgotten things and the past instead of enjoying a meal with all of your kin, you know, at the community center. Yeah, and we'll see this when we get into talking about the plot, about how this interest in the stuff that you can find in the Forgotten Works, if you're interested in that, you're suspect you're in some way and just maybe don't fit in. But before we get to talking about the plot, I, I have a lot of discussion questions here about the setting. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's typical for me. I always care more about settings than about plots and characters. Uh, but I think 
this is also where some of the parallels with Gene Wolfe, you know, come in here. And really the first question that I have is just, you know, what is this setting, right? I, you know, basic question of, is this earth? But I'll, I'll preface that question just by saying that, you know, this is not a science fiction book in which I think we're meant to really be able to discern the answer to this type of question. Whereas, right, when we're covering Gene Wolfe and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but let's just say that, you know, each installment of the solar cycle invites us to ask, wait, where is this? When is this? What's going on here? Right. That's a fundamental question of much of, of Gene Wolfe's work. And it's a question that I definitely have here, even if I think that with Gene Wolfe, we are meant to be able to puzzle that out. That's part of the, the, the plan from Gene Wolfe. It's part of the joy for us as readers, even though I don't think we're really meant to be able to figure that out here, I still think it's an exercise worth doing. So that's the question that I have for you, Brandon, is, is this Earth? Yeah, I'm not sure whether this is Earth. There's certainly little to suggest that it is, but it could be an Earth that is far distant from our time in the in the future, I suppose. But I really get the sense that if this is Earth, it's like a biodome <laughs> type of structure. Uh, my gut tells me it's some kind of spaceship because... We learn that all the stars are red and they move around as well. They wander at night. You know, that's kind of, you know, the word planet means wanderer and, they, you know, the, the Greeks or whomever named them that because they were wandering stars. But we learn that all these stars are red. They move around at night. To me, this could be the red shift um, of a starship traveling at a very high speed. Um, or it could be just that things are a little haywire under the heat lamp that all these, I don't know, ants live in or something. I don't know. Uh, I, I do want to emphasize that I think to give a definitive answer here would take away from the novel. And in my opinion, that that to engage with this novel within the limits of your own imagination or to stretch your imagination a little bit is really the, in the intended um, part of the fun. But yeah, my answer is spaceship or biodome. Yeah, this is my sense as well. Uh, you know, I will say this is where I, I I said earlier that you know maybe this kind of comes up to the border of magical realism a little bit here, which is that these are questions that you can't help but have as you're reading the story, but you're not really supposed to ask them, and, and the answers aren't really meant to right. matter. You're just meant to accept that this is the way that this world works. This is the way that these people function. So, but yeah, trying to come up with an answer for why is the sun a different color, uh, you know, every day of the week on some kind. Kind of uh, you know rotation here, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe there is something wrong with the star that this planet, uh, maybe it's Earth in the future, you know, is orbiting. But it seems more likely that this would be something mechanical in some way. So yeah, maybe it's a spaceship in a hollowed out asteroid. Uh, maybe it is a biodome or something like that. But that was my sense as well. Part of that's because this world feels very small. Like I I don't have the sense that there are other humans in this world or other other communities. What's your sense of this? Yeah, I, I I don't get that sense either. I mean, I feel a little bit, there's like a little element of Zardoz here for me where it's, you know, maybe if you do discover that there are other humans or something or another community, they're the, the gods controlling the kind of world that you are the plaything of. Um, there's a strangeness here in its approach that you get the sense that the, the, the limits of what our narrator knows really are the limits of the world itself. And that's that's a little bit of Wittgenstein here on purpose, you know, a little bit of language theory to say that like what we can articulate is is really what the world is. And um, we are always on the edges of what 
what the world is. We think we know about the world because we have photographs of it from space. But like, what do we really know? How big is the world really to us as individuals? And um, that that's I think that's something of a concern of Brodigan's in the, in this story. And uh, do we need to know more than that? There are tigers, you know, just beyond the reach of the campfire, and that we shouldn't be obsessed with the you know, material past in some way or, or whatever is going on here? What do we need to know to flourish now? This is part of what is unsettling, right, about the people who are interested in the forgotten works and the stuff that is there. Where There's a real sense that even just being curious about anything outside of this very small world is suspect in some way, uh, not in any kind of moral way. There's certainly no indication that there's like a rule that, you know, you're not supposed to go in the forgotten works or something like that. There's none, none of that. There's just a sense that anyone who, who really questions what their world is like is kind of a problem in this community in some way. That just culturally is, I think, interesting. But one of the things that I, that really interests me in the way that this setting works is the way that the forgotten works are described. Uh, they're described in such a way that I couldn't make sense really of what exactly the forgotten works is. Is it a, a, a factory? Is it some kind of wasteland? Uh, what was your sense of this? So I, I it felt to me like an abandoned city or an abandoned industrial uh, block or something like that. Uh, but if we're going with like the spaceship route, it felt like the forgotten engineering works, but there's like no way down. There's no sense of direction. It's very much like the, these, these characters kind of live, you know, you're traveling from surface to surface. And so there's no sense that they're going down to different decks in the forgotten works or something along those lines, though buildings may have depth or height to them. Um, that to me, it just felt kind of like an abandoned city. Or an abandoned, as I said, an abandoned factory or something along those lines. But certainly it's a relic of a lost and forgotten civilization. And, and, and you know, you were saying that it's suspect for this culture to investigate beyond their need to know. And that's even present in the narrative uh, voice of this story. That the novel, the way that this narrator conceives of a book as a work of art, as an artifact, is to describe the now. Let me actually read a little bit of text here. I'm going to read from page 71 of the vintage uh, edition that we have. And this is just a chapter called The Forgotten Works. And here's what the narrator says. Nobody knows how old the forgotten works are, reaching as they do into distances that we cannot travel nor want to. Nobody has been very far into the Forgotten Works, except that guy Charlie said wrote a book about them, and I wonder what his trouble was to spend weeks in there. The Forgotten Works just go on and 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 on. You get the picture. It's a big place, much bigger than we are. I may have actually left out and on. There's a lot of and-ons there. But yeah, that's, I think, a nice little taste of the writing style here. But then also, that's really it that we get for description, right? So there's you know, a sense of, of vastness, of bigness here, uh, but keep using this idea of going into this as a, as a, as a place. Um, so yeah, it's unclear what exactly this is, but it certainly is, you know, the wilderness in some sense, it's the unknown in some sense. And it has this real yeah, postmodern sci-fi kind of feel to it where it works better for us not really knowing what it is, right? Like if this were adapted to screen, we would immediately 
lose all of the awesomeness of the forgotten works because a creator and adapter would have to make a choice about what this is and what it looks like. And it works better in the story for that being utterly unclear. Right. You don't want the reveal of the forgotten thing to be like a, uh, the Statue of Liberty half buried in sand, you know, at the end of Planet of the Apes or something like that. You know, you don't you don't want that for this story, that kind of detailed revelation or epiphany. You 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 need the unknown to be kind of present in the way it is in the story for the story to function, to just say, like, we don't have language. This is a forgotten thing. This is the category of forgotten things. Our culture is about the now. We're not interested in predicting the future. Everything is sort of prepared for us and and here for us so long as we keep up our duties. Um, and yeah, it's just a very strange, very strange approach to reality that's kind of it's almost a novel in a sense about a lack of curiosity that instead of the characters being curious about the world, the reader becomes curious about the narrator's world. And it's a great literary trick, I'd say. I'm so glad that you brought up Planet of the Apes because I couldn't stop thinking about Planet of the Apes while reading this story and was actually expecting that we were going to get that type of Statue of Liberty moment at the end where something <laughs> was going to become clear to us. Another visual science fiction story, another on-screen science fiction story that was in the back of my mind a lot while reading this was the recent TV show, I guess ongoing TV show, uh, Severance uh, from Apple TV, right? This workplace drama uh, that is all set in Bell Labs in New Jersey. And that was an image that I kept coming back to really whenever I was thinking about iDeath. That uh, might be too large of a scale, but I just had this feeling of iDeath as this kind of labyrinthine compound here that's outside of the the town, right, where everybody else lives. I think we might be dealing with a community of about a thousand people. Almost everybody lives in the town, but then there are these people who live in iDeath, this compound, uh, which just in itself, that's kind of a strange idea. It has a bizarre name. So yeah, that was an image that I had in mind was the, the Bell Labs compound in New Jersey. But really what I'm driving at here, Brandon, is just the question of what is iDeath? Like, what is it? Why does it have that name? What do you think is going on there? You know, I, I wonder if iDeath isn't actually an old cemetery or like a giant park that includes a cemetery and that name just kind of stuck over time and, and nobody knows why it's called iDeath, but we can suss it out a little bit. I think there's a sense that it still acts as a kind of burial ground, even though people live there um, and the dead are put on display. Uh, there's some kind of industry going on there with the with the watermelon works and the trout hatchery. Um, and it's described as though it's a house with a living room and so on, even though everything is outdoors. And so I wonder, you know, if I death isn't just some, like as you're putting out, some kind of giant enclosed space, an interior garden of some kind. I don't know. I mean, I, I think I death here, there's so much of this novel is caught up in funerary practices, but really the function of grief maybe in some way. And so I think I death is also even meant here as a signal for us uh, if we're going to leave the text um, and say that the the text is is pointing outside of itself rather than inside of itself. Often we do criticism that says the text is internal to itself, but I wonder if I death isn't here as a signal to us to kind of hone in on the ways in which this novel is about um, modes of grief, maybe, 
and uh, I'm not. I, it's a weird. It's weird to think of the novel in that way, but I think you can't escape the fact that this novel is about death and dying. Right. Yeah, that's a great segue to get into the synopsis, but I'm going to not take it uh, just yet because I do want to talk about one more thing here, or circle back to really what was the first question in this discussion segment, which is, you know, is this Earth or, or really just where is this? What is this setting? Because certainly something that I played around with here is that uh, this is some kind of afterlife. That this is some kind of, you know, limbo or, or purgatory in some sense, where these people are recently dead but don't know that uh, in some way, and that they're here to be getting themselves, getting their spiritual selves uh, ready for the more complete afterlife in some way. Uh, in fact, really, what I will say is that I had real strong for lesson vibes from this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think th- that sense is is explicit in the text. It's, I think we're meant to feel that way because, regardless of your you know belief system, this novel does tug on Dante a little bit in the Forgotten Works. Uh, in the chapter you just read, at the end of it, there's this point where. Margaret and the narrator travel, you know, nobody goes deep enough into the Forgotten Works to spend the night there. So everybody, you can get a certain distance in there and still get in your bed at night, uh, which is why the guy who stayed there for three weeks was so weird. Like, why wouldn't you sleep in your assigned bed? But there's a sign above the gate that goes, you know, deeper into the Forgotten Works or the entrance to the Forgotten Works with a statue of a forgotten thing beside it. And it says... You know, this is the entrance to the Forgotten Works. Be careful, you might get lost. And that just seems to me to be a playful version of Dante's sign, you know, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. And so there is this sense, I think, of, you know, if if the, the Forgotten Works are maybe a kind of inferno type of place, but that inertness of language, that neutrality of languages is more of a purgatorio type of situation than than an, than a, than an inferno. Yeah, that's a great observation. Yeah, I think there's like actually a literal hell that you could choose to go into here, but and you're here in some sense to make that choice, maybe, but don't make that choice. That certainly, I think, is a a, a valid reading of this story. Well, look, okay, let's let's actually go talk about the plot here. Um, the plot really all has mostly already happened before the present of the narrative. This all hinges on these outcasts who set up a new community at the Forgotten Works and you know, make whiskey, whatever whatever it is that they are calling whiskey here. And these people eventually decide that they want to come back to the community, uh, really come back to death rather than the, the town. But they have some strange ideas about the purpose of death And uh, we don't really know what they are. They just keep saying they have figured out what eye death is really for. No one else does, and they're gonna, you know, come back seemingly to take it over and and you know show people what eye death is really for. But when they do come back for that, they just lead everyone to the trout hatchery and then they kill themselves in this really gruesome manner. And the narrator is involved in this because his girlfriend, this is this character, Margaret, you just mentioned, uh, is involved in this because Margaret was at least tangentially involved with this group of outcasts. And I should say that when the story opens, Margaret is the narrator's ex-girlfriend. He has moved on. But Margaret is 
really into exploring the forgotten works. And so while she's not really a part of this outcast community, she doesn't live out there, she does talk with them. And suspicion falls on her that she is like a kind of spy for them. And the narrator definitely thinks that her fascination with the forgotten works and the stuff that you can find there, that fascination is off-putting. It's weird. It really begins a rift between them. And even in the aftermath of this, after this group has committed this mass suicide with someone we might think of as a kind of cult leader, I guess, people no longer trust Margaret. They no longer like Margaret. It's pretty clear that she's upset about that. She's also very upset about the end of her relationship with the narrator. And ultimately, and this happens in the present of the story, ultimately she takes her own life as well. And the book ends with Margaret's funeral. And really it ends with a kind of celebration after the funeral. There's some musicians who are just about to begin playing. And then that's really the end of the book. And well, I guess that's really the plot as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's hard to say this book has a plot. I think you did a great job of pointing out the degree to which plot it has. What it has is like thematic movements. It's, you know, Brodigan was a poet uh, too. And this, this novel shares a lot of elements with, you know, prose poetry or something along those lines where it's really just a lot of connected, beautiful passages. And it's concerned with, you know, death. In the chapter where In Boyle and his crew come to the trout hatchery uh, and kill themselves, there's this this discussion about how the tigers knew really what in death was. And we should also mention that eye death is something that's always shifting. There are Features that are standard to every kind of, I guess, perspective or vantage point of viewing eye death, but it's a constantly shifting vision of itself. No one really has a bead on what it is. And that's not just caught up in its linguistic meaning, but also literally in its ability to be perceived. And so it's just this word that people have for this place. The tigers knew what it was. Uh, there's this hint earlier on in the novel that, uh, you know, when Pauline, who is the narrator's current girlfriend, who was like a sister to Margaret, who feels really guilty about their relationship, um, where Pauline and the narrator are talking about tigers, and she says, we were tigers once, but maybe we changed. Um, people have no idea how to even characterize or categorize differences between themselves and maybe other species or other types of intelligent beings. But the tigers know what eye death is for, and they're all dead, and now they can't tell us. And so there's just this real deep strangeness about it that is, this novel's really caught up in interpretations of meaning and uh, uh, like pragmatism versus other sorts of uh, ways of knowing or conceptions of truth. And, um, yeah, I don't know. You did a great job. I just, I just wanted to bring all that out too in, in what's going on in this book. Yeah. One of the strange features of this, and we eventually will just ask the basic question of, Hey, what is this book about? But let's dance around that a little bit here because one <laughs> yeah. of the bizarre features of this book is that the narrator doesn't have a name, but it's not just that he doesn't like tell us his name. He actually tells us, I am one of those who do not have a regular name. My name depends on you. Just call me whatever is in your mind. That's, you know, that's bizarre, right? That's not how names work in, in our world. That's not how names work, you know, in any any society I've ever encountered <laughs> in any way. So 
but, but it's also clear that there are like just regular names. There's a dude named Charlie and his name is always Charlie. You don't just call him whatever is in your mind. His name is Charlie, right? Um, there's, you know, there's Margaret, there's Pauline as well. So what, what do you think is up here? Like, it, what does this signify about the narrator, if anything? Yeah, I think that the fact that the artist doesn't have a regular name, which is like what they're called in the book, is is dealing with one of the subjects of the novel, which is the role of the artist in community or in society. Even if people have odd names like In Boyle, you know, most of the characters have names that we'd recognize, but they're not artists. They're not maker. And and the role that art plays in this community is, I think, also a central motif of the novel and the kind of art that gets me. There's monumental sculpture that is also kind of memorializing something, though it's unclear what the past, Some sometimes it's just like a large potato. Um, there's some kind of importance to monumental sculpture and memorialization of the dead. The dead are all on display and lit with a kind of something called foxfire that people can always see them in the rivers. And writing doesn't happen too much. There's not too much need for this kind of interpretive representational art, which novels are typically a, a great mode of. So the narrator is not a great sculptor, but he is an artist. That's his role in community. His name is, I think, caught up in that. And because he's really bad at being a sculptor, a monumental sculpture uh, sculptor, he's going to write a book instead because he still has to fulfill his duty as artist to community. And this book is the product of that endeavor. And so his name is really caught up in his role and the way people treat him. And it's not a name like Smith or Baker or, you know, Fenstermacher or something like that, you know, window maker. There, his name is what is in people's mind because he's a person whose job it is to represent leisure or the labor of leisure rather than labor in service to a functional end, which is what most other people are doing. And so there's a question of his role as a maker of art, but also a representative of uh, a leisurely existence and the allowances that are made for him in the community as a result of that. So I think whatever else is going on here with names, the role of the artist is caught up in that somehow. Well, let's keep thinking about the role of this artist, the role of this writer here, because I want to just talk about really the last page of this story, because the book kind of just stops and, and stops in a, a, a bizarre way. Uh, this final chapter is called Their Instruments Playing. I'm just going to read the whole thing. You know, it's uh, just a few sentences, really. People from the town began arriving for the dance about half an hour before sundown. We took their mackinaws and hats and showed them into the trout hatchery. Everybody seemed to be in fairly good spirits. The musicians took out their instruments and waited for the sun to go down. It would only be a few moments now. We all waited patiently. The room glowed with lanterns. The trout swam back and forth in their trays and ponds. We would dance around them. Pauline looked very pretty. Charlie's new overalls looked good. I don't know why Fred's hair looked as if he hadn't combed it at all. The musicians were poised with their instruments. They were ready to go. It would only be a few seconds now, I wrote. And... That's it. That's the that's the end of the book. Uh, what's up? What's up with that? Well, I think that you know the main driver of the plot of the novel, as much as there's a plot as opposed to a story, is this romantic triangle between Pauline, the narrator, 
and and Margaret, or the narrator and Pauline and, and the narrator and Margaret. Pauline and Margaret are very good friends. Pauline feels racked with guilt over the narrator's dismissal of Margaret, though we learn that that the narrator's ending his relationship with Margaret has to do with her, her obsession with the forgotten works and also the, the fact that she can't avoid stepping on a certain board on the bridge uh, to his <laughs> house. Um, you know, they've reached that point in the, in their relationship that uh, you either get past or end it. And he had, to, he had to end it. The minor irritations and pet peeves were too much for him. And so the novel ends on this kind of melancholy or bittersweet note at, at, the celebration of Margaret's funeral, which I think this kind of degree to which this is a celebration, the way that she, her room is blocked up. So there's no even access to her material existence anymore. That I think all of these sorts of things, Glenn, have suggested to you that this is a kind of afterlife, um, that this is a final, the true moving on. But anyway, the novel ending on this note is really the resolution to the love triangle. The narrator is going to be with Pauline. He feels resolved in that. Um, he doesn't have to deal with Margaret anymore. It's a grim sort of uh, emotional punch to end the novel on, but I think it's appropriate to resolve the plot in this moment. I agree. But it does then bring us to the big question here, right? Which is that if the plot as it's as it's presented here in a kind of scattered way really turns out to have been about this love triangle, and I completely agree with you about that, is that what you would say the book is about? Or would you say this book is about something else? No, that's the hanger that this kind of uh, suit has been put on um, to give it shape. Because, you know, you have to have a, I don't care how experimental your novel is, you need a conflict to draw the narrator in. And so this is why I compare Brodigan here to to Vonnegut. Vonnegut is, is sort of the king of bringing in these small conflicts to compel the narrative forward when his real concerns are things utterly outside of the conflicts that he's presenting on page. And so I think, you know, at the most zoomed out level, this novel is about local community and its concerns. And this is um, also a hermetically sealed community. So the concerns don't include anything outside of it. Whereas anybody who lives in, in the kind of world we do might have real concerns about their local community, but also have to be concerned about things outside of their community. Uh, so that's the most zoomed out level. What should we be concerned about? What are the things that should drive our ordinary relations with one another? What's important to us as a community? Uh, and that's that's uh, that to me is the zoomed out level. And then when you zoom in a little bit at the community level, we're dealing with death, grief, death rituals, the complexity of romantic relationships within close-knit communities. I mean, read any sort of drawing room novel from the 19th century and these kind of tight-knit agricultural communities, even with all the class concerns, people's romantic relationships are always out of control when you're when you're in this kind of tight quarters with people over your whole the course of your whole life. Um, we're also looking at the purpose of industry um, and the values that Kinship bring to community, you know, what do you not violate when you say someone is of your kind or of your family or those sorts of relationships, but also when ostracization becomes essential to the maintenance of the communal values. Uh, so that's what I think the novel is concerned with, whether or not it's about that 
maybe I've sidestepped. Well, I think, you know, the question of uh, uh, concerned with and about <laughs> splitting hairs, it's a hair splitting <laughs> exercise we don't need to engage in here. I, I think that's a fine answer to the question, what is this book about? Uh, something else that we need to talk about here, and let's move into our last uh, segment on the outline here, is is the craft, is the writing of this. Now, of course, you, Brandon, have a formal education and the technical vocabulary to talk about style uh, that I simply do not have. So I'm going to kick this one to you. How would you describe the style of this book for someone who's not uh, not read it? I'm going to take a long time to answer this question uh, because uh, I'm really enthralled with the way that this novel is written. One way to approach the style of the book, I think, is to think about this as a collection uh, of prose poetry. You know, now there are links between each chapter or poem, but I think like like any good collection of poetry, um, some pleasure of reading this novel could be drawn from just picking up the book at random and reading a chapter. And that's not to say that this novel shouldn't be be read as a novel. It absolutely should be, which is to say, you know, read it from start to finish. It's why it's characterized as a novel and not a, another collection of Brodigan's poetry. But I liken this to poetry mainly because the descriptive language here, even the nouns of the text, are meant to be evocative rather than they're meant to be directly correlative to an object. In other words, the language here is not a tool that is used by the subject to describe an object clearly. And I want to talk about that because it's a, it's a great technique um, in writing and it's very difficult to pull off. But one of the ways that Brodigan does pull this off, this evocation of a thing rather than uh, using a word as a familiar description of a thing, of a noun, is by tricking us into thinking that we understand meaning through repetition of language, that the repetition of a word associated with an object is a way we can derive meaning of what the object is. And this is pretty obvious, I think, if you've ever had a, a kid running around your in your home and you see the way that they acquire language, uh, you know, from Babel, starting with Babel, moving towards intelligent diction is, is repetition. They hear a thing a lot and then they associate with an object and they acquire language. Um, but repetition of language also can disorient us once we have acquired language or make language lose its meaning as well. And this idea that repetition can, can cause us to lose our sense of meaning is explored, I think, perfectly in, in Gertrude Stein's poem, Susie Asado, which I'm going to read here now for those who don't know it as a bit of orienting to the kind of theoretical stuff I'm talking about. So here's Gertrude Stein's poem, Susie Asado. Sweet, 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 sweet tea, Susie Asado. Sweet, 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 sweet tea, Susie Asado. Susie Asado, which is told Trey Shore, a lean on the shoe, this means slips, slips hers. When the ancient light gray is clean, it is yellow, it is a silver cellar. This is a please, this is a please, there are seds to jelly. There are the wets, these say, the sets to leave a crown to Inky. Inky is short for incubus, a pot. A pot is a beginning of a rare bit of trees. Trees tremble. 
the old vats are in baubles. Baubles with shade and shove and render clean. Render clean must. Drink pups. Drink pups, drink pups, lease a sash hold. See it shine, and a bobble ink has pins. It shows a nail. What is a nail? A nail is unison. Sweet, 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 sweet tea. And I suppose, you know, I, I could have also read any number of E.E. E. Cummings poems. Specifically, I'm thinking of a poem, My Father Moved Through Dooms of Love, um, which also plays with meaning and evocation. And that poem, I think, is too complicated to not ex- explicate and, and, and it would detract from, you know, the point I'm trying to make about repetition here and disorientation and reorientation of meaning. Um, but you see, in any event, how in, in Stein's poem, how repetition and unfamiliar definitions are used to both disorient and reorient our approach to meaning within the poem itself. And this playfulness with language is meant, I think, to highlight the degree to which language is a social convention. And and challenging social convention is at least a part of of postmodernism as a literary movement, though this kind of, I don't know, documenting the decay of convention, um, of institutional meaning and so forth really begins with modernism and, you know, whatever. I guess post just means after. So one way to think about postmodernism is is as if the fruits of modernism have ripened and were digested by intelligent folk who wanted to take it further. Anyway, I'm not here to make a defense of postmodernism. I'm only trying to say that the kind of play that Brodigan is engaged with is rooted in this kind of poetics of disorientation by using uh, familiar language to cause us to look critically at social convention and its uses. So when we read the opening sentence of the novel, which is, in watermelon sugar, the deeds were done and done again, as my life is done in watermelon sugar. We're meant to feel this sense that meaning is going to be slippery. And we don't have to put crampons on to walk in this kind of slippery ground. We don't need to make it more rough in order to kind of gather meaning. I'm you know, sorry for all of you who are um, hearing too much Wittgenstein here. But I, th- I think <laughs> that, that this novel just works best to dive in, let your brain try to fill the gaps of meaning and why meaning or lack of meaning might be construed that it is the way within the novel, to let repetition do its job of both suggesting something specific, but also leaving us disoriented. You know, there's no way watermelon sugar could be all that it is in this novel, but it doesn't matter. It is a specific thing to this community. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of the, the style of the book. It's I guess, a poetics of disorientation. Not sure if that's a thing, but I think I've described what I'm trying to say as well as I can. And now it's up to you, Glenn, to tell me why I haven't and to specify to our listeners uh, where where I've left uh, too many gaps of meaning myself. No, I think you've done a great job of describing this book's style and and you know technically thinking about how it works, talking about what postmodernism is. Uh, I mean, I've given some examples of this already, but I think that we should give some more examples of how this works. Just give people a taste of what it is like to read this, just this beautiful prose or, or you know, series of, of prose poems as you've described it. What's, uh, what's, what's a favorite passage of yours that you want to read for people? Well, I love this business with Margaret and the board on the, on the bridge. So I'm going to read um, 
From early in the novel, in fact, page five, the first chapter called Margaret. This morning, there was a knock at the door. I could tell who it was by the way they knocked, and I heard them coming across the bridge. They stepped on the only board that makes any noise. They always step on it. I have never been able to figure this out. I have thought a great deal about why they always step on that same board, how they cannot miss it, and now they stood outside my door, knocking. I did not acknowledge their knocking because I just wasn't interested. I did not want to see them. I knew what they would be about and did not care for it. Finally, they stopped knocking and went back across the bridge, and they, of course, stepped on the same board, a long board with the nails not lined up right, built years ago, and no way to fix it. And then they were gone, and the board was silent. I can walk across the bridge hundreds of times without stepping on that board, but Margaret always steps on it. I mean, like I could have honestly read any chapter from this book, but this one sticks out to me for the way it communicates about us, uh, to us uh, about a, a certain kind of decay of the world. They have no way to fix this board now. They can't replace it for some reason, even though they could. About the irritation this narrator feels with Margaret, though we don't know why yet, and how they wait to delay that information about who was coming across, even though the chapter is called Margaret, till the very end. Uh, just a lot of fun... I don't know, playful writing here that I really love and appreciate and I think is also sort of indicative of what the rest of the book is like as well. I do also like the element of this that you brought up earlier, right? That it's, you know, the irritation about the board is, uh, you know, something that then becomes much magnified, right? Uh, it's something <laughs> that you can overlook in the happy, the happy times, but then just the nuisance, the annoyance of this uh, becomes a bigger and bigger deal. Uh, we've been having a, a rough day in our household here, as you know, Brandon, we talked about this before we hopped on the actual microphones today, but uh, uh, sick child. And this morning, I think I just blurted out something like, why is this sticky? Why is everything always sticky? You know, it just, yeah, it's, it's felt like, why is, why is that board always making noise when you walk across the bridge, right? We I think we all have something like this. We've all experienced something like this in you know, our relationships with other people, partners, but yeah, you know, other types of relationships that we're in as well. Brodigan has captured that here in a way, well, he's captured it without having to spell any of it out, right? He just shows it to us without telling it to us. And that is uh, some brilliant writing, I think. It's also astonishing to me the way that the narrator is just so open about their lousiness as a person, right? It's it's like, just answer the door and tell them the relationship's over and you can't go on like this, right? You can't, you've ended it, it's over. But the narrator here is just saying like, I, I look, I, I don't care and I'm not interested and uh, you're irritating me and our relationship is over, right? Like, and so it's just, it's, Something I think all of us can empathize with as having those feelings towards other people. Maybe we've ended relationships on these bases. Maybe we have to navigate them as you did this morning, you know, wondering why there's, you know, jelly on the door or snot on the couch or something. You know, like what is even going on here? And with kids, you know, you can't end a relationship on that basis. You have to teach <laughs> them just to just to not be so sticky as they continue to grow up. Um, but yeah, it's the truthfulness of the of those feelings is on display without judgment. That's something I go to literature for, to just put things that we don't really 
engage with seriously, I think, as a culture, but we all feel, and especially now with literary, with so much of art caught up in good moral behavior, even something as, you know, like G-rated as this is, having sad feelings about, or bad feelings about another person, it's weirdly refreshing to see in print um, just someone so unsympathetic, but deeply reminiscent of ourselves, I think, in our own bad behavior and bad emotions at times towards one another. Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons why this made me feel like this is some kind of afterlife experience here, right? That these are people who perhaps just weren't good, but weren't bad either, but have, you know, have to get themselves right in some way or finish kind of figuring out who they are so that they end up in the the proper type of afterlife. I mean, we're thinking here specifically in a kind of Abrahamic sense of, a, of an afterlife, maybe even specifically a Christian sense of an afterlife here. But this is one of these moments that felt this way to me, right? Where these characters are often kind of petty in ways like this that, that, of course, certainly we all are. I mean, I've just just admitted that I was feeling that way today as well. But I want to be clear, it was not Finch who is generally the source of weird stickiness in the kitchen. It, uh, Finch is off the hook here. It's not, not the sick child I was uh, being, uh, being uh, uh, impatiently annoyed by this morning. Well, I'm going to read a, a passage as well. I won't read an entire chapter, but I want to read a, an entire paragraph. This is on page 10. This is from a, a chapter called Charlie's Idea. Uh, Charlie's Idea is that the narrator should write a book. And the narrator is making a list of all the things that he wants to put in the book. And sometimes the list really is just, uh, you know, maybe never quite one word, but two or three words, uh, you know, an incomplete sentence. But there is an item here where we get an entire paragraph. It's item three. The tigers and how they lived and how beautiful they were and how they died and how they talked to me while they ate my parents and how I talked back to them and how they stopped eating my parents, though it did not help my parents any. Nothing could help them by then. And we talked for a long time and one of the tigers helped me with my arithmetic. Then they told me to go away while they finished eating my parents and I went away. I returned later that night to burn the shack down. That's what we did in those days. And... I mean, it's just a beautiful bit of writing. It's just this, it's not quite one sentence, but it's, you know, a run-on sentence for a long bit of this, this kind of stream of consciousness writing. But it also, just in the way that you talked about with your passage, Brandon, it contains an awful lot of world building in it, none of which is explicated. And so it all gives us this sense of kind of depth to the world, but also this sense of alienation from this world that I think is something also that Jane Wolfe is a real master of, right? And it's one of the reasons, again, why we decided to cover this story on this show rather than to do this on ATAS or Elder Sign or, you know, one of the, I don't know, hundred other shows that we do from time to time uh, that I think just works here in a way that really compels me, compels me as someone who really likes science fiction or really likes speculative fiction, but I think also can be compelling to people who are here for the poetry of this or here for the postmodernism of this. It's just, it works in so many, in so many different ways. It's appealing, I think, to so many different audiences, just brilliant writing. It absolutely is. And I mean, we get here this, this older practice of you know, the fun- funer- funereal rites, which is we burn the house down. Now, is that related to the tigers? Is that what you do when people die? You know, this is that because there's no new people being generated or born? Um, we don't know. We know, though, that this culture went from burning down 
the places of the dead to just blocking up their rooms so no one could enter them again. And so there's this this sense of movement that you get through this culture that this culture is 100% caught up with the funeral and death death rituals. And that's kind of what the culture is. There's not much to draw people to the present life, to forecasting the future, to changing their behavior or attitudes about moving through the world and having relationships with other people and and so on. It's just things kind of happen, things change, we do this, we do that. And I just, I really do love the occasional novel that is really caught up in this sort of deceptively simplistic, descriptive writing. And um, Vonnegut, as I said, is the guy who really, I probably picked up on this from Brodigan, uh, I think, in in one degree or another. Um, And there's not too many writers who can really pull this off. It's really hard to do well and to build an audience around. Well, I think now that we are really just praising the book again, I think that's a, a great note for us to wrap this episode up. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Thanks again for listening. Um, we hope you really enjoyed sort of the breaks we've been taking from from Gene Wolfe on this show. And if you like the way we cover other writers, you might enjoy some of our other creative projects like Elder Sign, which you can find at claytemplemedia.com. But don't worry, we'll be back in January with the first of six episodes on Gene Wolfe's novella, The Eye Flash Miracles. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>